This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. My guest today is Melissa Phoebos. Melissa is the author of Girlhood, a collection of essays about her journey through adolescence into adulthood. It's a book about transformation and a harrowing examination of how women are conditioned to be complicit in their own sexuality. Her book combines her own experiences interviews with other women, scholarly research, and cultural examples. Today, Melissa and I talk about the messages we receive as young women or girls. We talk about how important it is to slow down and acknowledge our emotions and how the things that happen to us in the early part of our lives are in many ways inextricably linked from who we are as adults. The only difference is awareness and the ability to be softer and gentler to ourselves. I learned so much from Melissa about taking care of your body, the supportive qualities of kink and BDSM, and how her marriage has given her permission to truly be herself and speak to the things that she needs most. Let's get to my conversation with Melissa Fibos. So excited to talk to you today. Like I said, I've heard so many incredible things about your book through women that I really love. And, you know, it's interesting. We were just talking about kids and animals and the kind of the responsibility of care. And, you know, for me, it kind of widens the funnel a little bit in terms of 
just thinking about that construct of care and thinking about how kind of foisted that is upon women or people that identify that way. And, you know, you know, taking in your book, you know, which is this incredible journey that you map out for us from girlhood to adulthood, it starts really in this place of, you know, exploring what it looked like for you to be bullied growing up. And I'm really curious about just how you mapped out that trajectory. Because I think even as little girls, we are kind of put in these positions of like care and what you're supposed to do. And I feel like even that construct somehow is a propellant for bullying. You know, it's like, what are you exhibiting or not exhibiting that puts you in the position to be the girl that has that experience? And then threading that all the way through to you moving through puberty and then moving into dominatrix work, which I really want to spend some time talking about. But (laughs) I'm really interested in how you mapped out that journey and figured out that these were the stories that you wanted to tell. To be totally honest, if it had occurred to me all at once that I was about to embark on the particular sort of narrative path that I did at the outset of the process before I had begun writing, I think I would have resisted it tooth and nail because it, it, I mean, one, it's a really daunting project (laughs) to take on. And two, I didn't, I had to write my way into a consciousness of my need to tell those stories. And what I mean by that is if you had asked me at any point before I wrote, you know, the first full length essay in the collection, which is really about a a pretty profound experience of bullying that I had in adolescence. If you had asked me at any point before I started writing that essay, did you have any experience of bullying? I would have said, no, I've never been bullied. I was very lucky in that way. And that came out of sort of a number of factors. And one was that I was really committed to a story about myself, that I was self-sufficient, that I was unaffected by things. And that if I saw the vulnerability of other people, it almost canceled out the ways that they could be harmful to me. Right. And, and that is where I think the burden of care sort of comes in in some ways. And I still see this where it's really hard for me to hold other people accountable for their harms and their behavior in my own mind. If I can see how they are wounded. Right. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. One doesn't preclude the other. Right. You know, and, and this is something we know, like hurt people, hurt people. Right. But as a kid, I didn't know that. And I certainly hadn't internalized it. And parts of me still haven't internalized it. So when I started writing this book, it was really just an instinct. Right. I started I had an instinct to write about why I like doing certain things as a dom later. And that story just I just kind of pulled it out of me like a ribbon where I was like, whoa, what is this? It's way longer than I thought. And from that, I sort of moved into a related essay and then a related essay. And I had probably written, you know, four or five of the essays out of the seven or eight that are in the book before I was ready to recognize that what I was writing was a constellation of topics that was sort of telling this larger overarching story, which really sort of boiled down to being much more effective than I ever wanted to admit to myself, right? Out of self-protection. And so I had the kind of luxury of taking it 
chapter by chapter, essay by essay. And then once I sort of had that moment of reckoning where I was like, okay, I'm in this, it needs, I need to finish it. What, what is it that I'm trying to say here? Then I was able to sort of zoom out a little bit and think about where I had started from and where I wanted to get to and who I was writing it for. You know, I think it's really interesting what you just shared about your kind of forgetting and remembering of your bullying experience when you're an adolescent. Because I think when we dig in on trauma, trauma is very elastic. It's really smart, right? In the sense that it can just tuck away in the right place and then just surprise you sometimes, you know? Nothing has given me more sort of reverence, I think, ultimately for the ways that my psyche has managed to survive and to protect me. And that sort of tucking away, right? That sort of rolling over or cleaning up or dissociating or whatever you want to call it. And I think those words sometimes get a really bad reputation, but I have come to recognize, particularly through writing this book, that that was my psyche doing the best it could with the resources it had to get me through a really hard experience, right? And that trauma didn't come back and ask to be written about until I had the inner resources and the outer resources, the community to support me through that process and the tools to really sort of integrate those experiences. Like, I don't think I was ready at a moment before I did that work. And this idea of tools, I think is really fascinating too. Skipping ahead a little bit to your work as a dominatrix. You know, I am deeply fascinated by BDSM and the kink community in general, you know, both from the perspective as a sexual and reproductive health educator and also as a gay person. And I think what's interesting and what I think most people don't realize about the kink community is that it is so tools orientated. It's so contractual. It's Mm -hmm. so explicit. And as a result, it's actually less confusing than vanilla sex Mm -hmm. encounters Mm -hmm. that tend to have a lot of complex emotionality that can be really hard for trauma survivors. Mm -hmm. And so there can be so much safety in BDSM, whether you're submissive, dominant, and I'm really interested to kind of hear your connection to that work, because I think for people that are not in the space, they read dominatrix at 20 and all of these stories and connotations kind of roll off of that. But for me, someone much more informed about it, when I learned that about you, I was like, oh, go girl, like, go do this. (laughs) Thank you. I was was just like, step in there and just like, you know, so I'd love to hear kind of. Sure. I mean, you know, for me, and I can get into this afterwards, but you know, there is uh, differences that complicate things when you look at sort of the distance between like a commercial kink and BDSM experience where you're getting paid and sort of a community experience where you're in sort of an equitable partnership that, that has other facets to it. But I will say that, you know, for me, when I became a Dom, it was the first time I was 21. I think it was the first time that having a conversation before an erotic interaction about consent and boundaries and limits and safe 
words. It was the first time I'd ever been invited to do that or that that had ever been normalized for me. And so it vastly and really positively affected all of my interactions after that, because I got to, you know, a client would come in, make an appointment if you hadn't seen them before, certainly. But even if you had, you would have a little consultation beforehand where you would come in and you wouldn't be in character and just be like, what are you interested in? Here's what I'm interested in. Here are my limits. Like I'd be willing to try that. Let's play it by ear. Here's my safe word. And so all of that is worked out ahead of time, it does not take away from the experience. It creates a safe space in which to have an experience. Right. And I think, you know, the sort of most common argument against, you know, ongoing affirmative consent is like, oh, it'll disrupt the experience. It's not sexy. And it's like, no, it's way sexier to feel safe, you know, where everybody feels safe and you have some information about what the other person is there for. And that actually, I was just talking to a friend the other day who is someone who I met while working at the dungeon and we've been friends for, you know, 15 years now, but she said it was the same thing for her where she, it was the first place that anyone was ever like, what are your limits? And she was like, Oh my God, I don't even know. Cause no one's ever asked me that. So yeah, I think it's just such a, it, it there is a health of communication in those spaces that I have not found really anywhere else, except maybe at the cuddle party, which I wrote about in this book, which felt sort of similar, you know, and it it got, it gets muddy for me because also, you know, in a commercial space, you know, I'm trying to say yes to as many things as possible because my livelihood depends on it. So that's like a slightly different metric that's happening in my mind, but, but that's more of an internal personal thing rather than sort of you know, the other person generally just accepts your limits. And if you're not into what they're into, they see someone else as I think it should be in life, right? Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Speaking about that complexity component, you know, you know, my feeling of you, especially through this book and, you know, through other things that I've read about, you know, you and your work is that there is this sex positivity, sex neutrality space that you really occupy and that you really occupy gently. But at the same time, I think often what I've noticed, especially as someone who also does that, there can be this feeling that we don't, experience shame at the same level of intensity as people who have maybe not become more comfortable with Mm -hmm. their sexuality or sexual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I really don't believe that to be true. And so I'm really 
curious about how you navigate shame. Like where does it show up for you? Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was in the writing of the book or in just, you know, your day-to-day life being in the body that you're in. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, <laughs> the short answer, you know, it, it, it shame as I understand it is something that comes from outside of us, right? It is something that's learned that's sort of we're indoctrinated into that's kind of implanted. And that's not a slow process. You know, it's something that starts really, really young and that gets reinforced and perpetuated through infinite sort of the granular to the macro in social situations and sexual situations within ourselves when we look in the mirror. And so you know, in the past, I think I had a kind of a fraught relationship to my own shame and my own inhibition when it came to sexual stuff. And when it just came to like being in a body, you know, and I thought like, I'm a feminist, I'm a queer woman. I've experienced in kink. Like it's that assumption that you were talking about where it's like, I should be over this by now or something. And then, you know, I really learned to have this kind of self-talk that answers that, that says, you know what? It took a long time to implant that mechanism for shame. And it's going to take a long time to undo it. I also live, we also live in a world that is still perpetuating it and reinforcing it. And I think it takes an equal force in ourselves, in our relationships, in our own lives to combat that. And it's slow, careful, consistent work. Like it's a practice, you know? And so I found that, I don't know, you know, like I, I've had meditation teachers that talk about something called the second arrow, which is basically like the feeling you have about the feeling, like the shame I have about my shame and how unhelpful that is. And so I think like you use the word gentle and like moving gently through those experiences has been so much more conducive to getting free, you know, where I'm like, Hey, okay. Of course you feel scared to like stand naked with the overhead light on, like, of course you do, you know, like what would make you feel a little more comfortable. And it's been really key for me to also, you know, curate my life with friendships and partners that help build that with me, right. That help build a space where we're constantly supporting and reinforcing and helping each other sort of undo that conditioning. And speaking of conditioning and you brought it up so so softly a couple of minutes ago, but this idea of being in a body, which is such a central kind of construct for me, it's something I'm always Mm -hmm. thinking about, especially with my work at Loom and trying to get women to feel and people to feel, you know, a sense of autonomy within Mm -hmm. their bodies. What did you learn about being in a body growing up? Like what was the narrative that was offered to you consciously from Mm -hmm. you? From your parents. Yeah. Well, you know, part of what's so challenging about it is that I got more than one message, right. As all of us do, I think. So I was really fortunate in that I grew up in a household. My mom was like a pretty intense, like second wave feminist. And she's like, like on the sort of end of the boomer generation. And we had like Ms. Magazine in our household and we went to like marches and national organization of women's meetings and stuff like that. And so I got sort of explicit messages from her that were about sort of, you know, gender parity or at least more equality than equity. I think at that point, like she was correcting my, my children's books with a little Sharpie so that it wasn't like Hansel who had the idea for the breadcrumbs. It was Gretel, you know, she was like changing things and she got me trapped 
and my brother dolls and all of that. I was very like, your body is a temple, like other people need to respect it. And these sort of like more banner ideas, which are totally true and good messages. Right. But I was getting all these other messages, especially after my body developed. Cause I was like a really kind of athletic, confident, like good student when I was little. And then suddenly I had breasts when I was like 10, when I was like 10, 11, I developed like pretty early and pretty dramatically. And it was like, instantly I became sexually objectified everywhere. I went in school, walking down the street, shopping and the corner store, like all of it. And so I was getting these messages that were even sort of from men and in the culture at large. And of course this was like reiterated on TV and in magazines, which my mom tried to keep out of our house. Didn't really work. That one sort of sexual attraction, like being able to sexually attract people was a form of power. In fact, it was a primary source of female power, but also that it was an incredible vulnerability, right? And it was this degradation of all of the other things I had valued about myself that suddenly my greatest power and my greatest vulnerability and a source of great humiliation was all in my physical form, right? And there were so many double binds and contradictions within that, that it, you know, I'll just say, and I'm sure that you can relate to this hearing other women's stories and probably from your own, that it's like, when I think about the amount of time that I spent feeling conflicted and obsessed and ashamed about my body and trying to control how it was seen, trying to find whatever narrow pathway might help me emerge from that time unscathed or to sort of triumph in some way. And of course there was no way. And I think about the time that I didn't spend like I don't know, writing, playing sports. Cause I didn't feel comfortable like running anymore because of the way my body moved. Like it was just this utter shift in focus to how I was seen by others and how I was treated subsequently, you know? And so that sort of little haven of my household was disrupted by the time I was 11. And I don't think I was able to really come back to it until my late teens, twenties. You know, as you sit in your body right now, like even in this conversation, what are the messages that you, that you hear now that feel supportive? Because when I hear Mm -hmm. everything that you just shared, it's at such a formative time. And I think you said a few minutes ago, this idea that shame doesn't just disappear, right? It is something Mm -hmm. that we are kind of constantly combating. And so what is that narrative, that inner tape now that feels, feels right, feels better versus Mm -hmm. the inner tape that you might've been playing at nine, Mm -hmm. 10, 11, 12. I think I've done a lot to sort of cultivate the voices that I want to be guided by and that I want to be supported by. And then I want to sort of govern my thinking and even the ways that I see other people's bodies and like, you know, just over the last 24 hours. So last night I have this group, my wife calls it my consciousness raising group. So we like basically a book club, but we read like a lot of stuff about anti racism. And right now we're reading Sonia Renee Taylor's the body is not an apology. And so we're into all of this body stuff, right? So we just had like this check-in where we all are just like, how are you feeling in your body? What's going on? Like what feels fucked up? Like what feels good? Like what's running through your mind? And we had a check-in and we set some intentions. And so I went to bed last night feeling like, I don't know, you know, like 
something that's lost when the focus is on how other people are perceiving me, like when I was younger, is that relationship with self. And this is something that like I could have talked almost my vocabulary, but I didn't have the experience. And I think, okay, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought that when I looked in the mirror and I was talking about your butt, I didn't mean that. That's an old story, you know? And I have this like really gentle sort of conversation going. And then like this morning I got up and I went to a Pilates class and I'm doing this like hyper gentle Pilates class. I'm the youngest person in the class by like 25 years. And it's, you know, one of the intentions I set last night in my group was like, I want to stay really in touch with doing my like movement and exercise and engagement, like really for health and for my soul, instead of to manipulate the ways that my body is seen by other people. And so I just drove back home from my Pilates class before I changed for the center and was like, just trying to sit with like, how do you feel? Did you work too hard? Were you present in your body? And so there are like a lot more questions than there used to be. And there's a lot more habituated reminders. Like even I'm really, something I'm really working on right now is when I look at other people's bodies to try to just remember, have the thought, look at that beautiful body about everyone, like dogs, kids, you know, all, all shapes just to be like, look at that beautiful body, like doing its work, you know, so that I can bring love back, back home to myself. I really love that so much. And I think particularly this piece of like looking at anybody and saying that's a beautiful body is such a tender alchemic practice because I think, as you said that, what showed up for me was when I see a beautiful body, I will acknowledge its beauty, but I'll be like, oh, I want that. Mm -hmm. Or I wish that was me. Mm -hmm. And it's a very subconscious exchange. I don't even know if it's factual. I actually don't even know if it's what I want, but Mm -hmm. something about our relationship with media our relationship with, you know, femininity as it's been constructed for us is when you see something, you are seeing something that you are being told that you need or want versus Mm -hmm. being able to really be in, you know, much more of a space of adoration Mm -hmm. and like community around Mm -hmm. the corporeal form. It's so, it's so real, right? Like, I think sometimes about this dog trainer that I worked with years ago, who was like, look, everything you do, you're training your dog, everything, right? You're reinforcing something. You're just, you're always reinforcing something. Right. And so without getting like too paranoid about it, I try to apply that to my own thinking. And I spent so many years doing exactly what you're talking about. And it still crops up all the time where I'm like, oh, I should look like that. Or I want to look like that. Or like, I'm scared to look like that, but just like trying to like really expand my notion of what beauty is, of what is desirable about what is is that's running through my mind when I look at different kinds of bodies, because like, you know, my internalized fat phobia, for instance, so deep, like I was an eating disordered teen and it feels like one of the one of the last realms where there just like, isn't that much conversation about it. It's still so socially acceptable to be really blatant about our fat phobia, you know, whereas like, you know, lots of other things are still happening, but we're much more careful about the way we talk about them. And so I'm really just trying to change that talk on the inside, which is so meticulous, you know, is really takes, it really takes a lot trying to think about the whole breadth of it 
can be really overwhelming. So I try to just have like a little set of practices that I can manage like one week at a time. It's all about just, you know, step by step, moment by moment, because the lived experience of being a woman, being a cis woman or identifying as a woman is inherently traumatic, Hmm. regardless of whether you've experienced sexual violence or intimate partner violence or you you name it because of the because of our form and the fact that the culture is not designed for us everything Mm -hmm. that we do is effortful and everything that we do is scrutinized and there is definitely this kind of subconscious rhythm of you're not supposed to be here Mm -hmm. and so i think as we try to do our own individual work, there has to be this focus on titration and dosage. You know, the, the idea of flooding oneself to fix your trauma or to mm-hmm. you know, move past X, Y, and Z very much is patriarchy, very much is whiteness. There, mm-hmm. the, the process of healing is not linear. It's very cyclical. And so I really hear just the care that you are injecting into your process. And it's really important, I think, for people to hear because, you know, we're only just starting now to understand that a slower cadence towards any type of healing goal is the most sustainable, you know, outside of coming out of, you know, decades of like seven days, 10 days, 30 days, 28 days, you know, that being the anthem. And something else that you brought up this idea of training really takes you back to a particular part of the book where you point out how girls, people learn how to put a condom on a banana and, you know, the the whole kind of sexual reproductive health conversation is very much male centered or phallic centered, penis centered, however you want to call it. But there's no, and it's all about unwanted pregnancy and birth control, but there's no focus on female pleasure, sexual pleasure, masturbation, that, you know, it's actually a vulva, not just a vagina. And so mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how would you reimagine sex education, keeping all of those pieces in mind? I mean, I think we do with sex education, what we do with everything, which is that we isolate it from the larger context of our lives. Right. And of course there's all the like sexism is, is baked in. But I think, you know, like that conversation that I, I should not have had the first conversation about consent at the dungeon in Manhattan when I was 21. Like I should have had it in fourth, fifth grade or whenever we started putting condoms on bananas and talking about boys having wet dreams and girls getting pregnant, you know, like talking about actual situations that kids are in, that young people are in. Like, what do you do when you're a maybe, you know, when someone invites you to a sexual practice or initiates sexual act and you're not sure and you don't want to hurt their feelings and you don't want to violate a social contract and you don't want to be embarrassed and you're kind of interested but like how do you have that conversation what do you say what do you do because the default especially for women for girls is just to to go along you know is to say yes whenever possible you know and that has long term repercussions you know it really does i actually think And I wasn't educated in this, obviously, but the Unitarian Universalists have a really amazing sex ed curriculum that's called, it's called OWL, 
our whole lives. And it's really this like integrative within the larger context of society and sort of of our bodies and our minds and our hearts in, in the context of sort of sexual interactions. So I do think it's work that's being done out there and I don't actually know what they're talking about. Schools. I have very low expectations for that, but I think it's just, just getting a little bit more honest, you know, having a conversation that takes into account what we're actually encountering in our lives and the internal reality. It's like, you know, it's like, just say no, you know, just people should respect your body, but like, how, how do you get people to respect your body? Right. And how do you do that when it offends other things that you've learned in more implicit ways, like that you shouldn't get, make other people upset with you or that everyone should like you, or that if you started a sexual interaction, it's rude to stop, you know, like we have to start talking about those implicit lessons before we can talk about replacing them with other things. Thinking about implicit and explicit lessons, I really loved reading the article that you wrote for Elle about you and your wife, Donica. You know, I think in relationships, my ideal is, I mean, you know, we're both cis queer women. And so we we share a lot of experiences, but, you know, in most of my relationships and certainly in our marriage, we each have our areas that are particularly challenging and in which we need a different kind of support. And ideally, and certainly for us, like our strengths also exist in ways that allow us to offer that support to the other person, you know? And, and so my relationship with Danica has been totally revolutionary for me in many ways. Like it is in this relationship that I learned how to not have sex when I don't want to, because she was like, I support you. Let's check in about it. You can stop anytime you want, you know? And it wasn't that my previous partners were pressuring me necessarily. It was just that I didn't have the aware, no one had ever said, Hey, it's okay. If you don't want to, or if you change your mind, like it's not going to affect how I feel about you at all. It is my preference, you know, and just making those conversations explicit in our relationship. And I, I could give you so many examples of that kind of thing. It gives so much fuel to the energy I have inside myself to feel safe doing that, you know, cause then there's a whole bunch more work inside myself to do that, but to have a space in our home, in our bed, in our relationship where I know I'm supported in that work and where I can talk about it when I take two steps back, you know, I mean, it's just absolutely invaluable. I've grown so, so much, you know, and it's, it's tricky because talking about this stuff is hard. It's so vulnerable, you know, and I, and I wasn't capable of it. I think I even probably had some relationships in the past where it would have been possible, but I just wasn't there yet. I couldn't say it out loud. And with her, it was just like the right time for both of us in multiple ways where we're able to sort of take that leap, ask for what we need, talk about why we can't meet a certain challenge and be supported by the other person and think about strategies together each other and to grow in those ways. So it's, it's just been, it's been huge, totally transformative for me. And I just love what you're leaning into around just the fact that this relationship was the first place that you were able to not have sex because you didn't want to, and that that didn't catapult the relationship into this rejection spiral, mm-hmm. you know, and how much safety that mm-hmm. creates for you to keep showing up and being yourself. And like, I can't help but think, and, you know, 
I'm projecting so you can tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, but you know, moments like that are, are kind of healing fractures, right. That are just like lingering around in our psyche. And I think to get that opportunity, like in your thirties is such a gift because you know, I think when you have a very linear relational trajectory, maybe you've been with one person since you were maybe in your mid twenties or early twenties, and you've stayed to that person maybe in your fifties. And obviously some relationships have that capacity to evolve, but I think there is something about not having that linearity and then being able to meet yourself with a partner who can really be present for who you actually are now and invite you into a new way of communicating. You know, I feel like we're hungry for that mm-hmm. and we don't even know that hunger is there. Mm-hmm. It's so and- true. Yeah. It's so real. And I, you know, and, and the thing is, and, and, you know, you brought this up, it's like, sometimes our stuff triggers our partner stuff. Right. And, and for that not to spiral out into alienation can be really challenging sometimes, you know, but it's also like you said, it's sort of like that fissure that that's an opportunity, you know, for both of us to be like, I'm feeling rejected. Oh, like what kind of reassurance help right now? Like, how can we both stay in this space together with all our feelings, with our little reactionary parts that are like running on scripts that we wrote way before we met each other. And some of it is also like, it depends upon the work that we're doing individually, like with our friends, with our therapists in ourselves and our writing, like whatever it is, you know, like for, for us to be able to show up for the other person's stuff, we have to be able to have a little bit of distance between, you know, our, our present self in the moment and other stuff that might get kicked up, like, feeling rejected or reassurance or whatever, you know, like we have to be able to sort of steady ourselves and inside of ourselves. And, you know, I don't think for a long time that I had the capacity to sort of self-soothe enough to like listen to someone else having an issue that freaked me out without being like, what? Just flying away, (laughs) you know, to really stay there and listen to what they were saying and not let the narrative inside my head start to drown them out. Like it's so advanced relationships. Whoo, you know, it's, it's really intense. And I think for me, the thing, and I, I think I wrote about this in that, in that L article that you mentioned, I really had to sort of, before I met her to take some time alone with myself where I wasn't in a relationship, which I had never done, like since I was a teenager and I spent a year just like, I'm not flirting. I'm not dating. I'm not doing anything because I just need to like figure out what's going on in here and what I want and what I want to do differently from what I've been doing. And that took some time. I had a very similar experience with my current partner. I spent, you know, I got, I was in a, had a relationship with a really wonderful ex-husband, husband. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And, you know, after that took, took about a year and a half where I was really, for the most part, on my own and in the confines of the pandemic, which as painful and and intense as it's been, you know, offered me this opportunity to really create a healthy relationship with isolation. And the unlock around that was how much I really loved it and how much it like helped me 
healthily compartmentalize like what made sense for me. And it's interesting, I think, before getting into this relationship, which is a deeply profound relationship, I really had to change my value system. And it was enforced on me in the sense that I couldn't do a lot outside of, you know, my house, it's, you know, sheltering mm-hmm. in place, all the things. But what I really walked away with after a year was that, especially even in all the work I did as, as a doula, was that I really evaluated myself or evaluated my worth through how well I took care of other people. Yeah. That was really like, I'm taking care of everybody really, 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 really well, then I'm good. Not even like, I feel good. No, I am good. Like I'm a good person, mm-hmm. you know? And over the past kind of two years, really, but particularly over the past year, I've really renegotiated that value system to understand that that is no longer how I want to kind of equate my value. And my value is actually how well can I articulate my needs to people in my life? Like that now is how I evaluate my value. Mm-hmm. And so going into a relationship with that as the, as the lens, as the value system has led to a lot of what you're sharing in your relationship in the sense, there's just a lot of rigorous communication because you communicate less when you're just concerned about the other and you are making choices to yep. make sure that they feel a sense of yep. you know, safety. And so again, it blends right back down into girlhood and what we were taught. I mean, that's not a value system I made for myself. Somebody gave that to me, you know, and it actually leads me back to ask you for folks that are raising girls, women, people that identify that way that might eventually decide to bring, bring more women into the world you know, what's your advice in terms of just imparting a different, more elastic narrative or kind of blueprint for, for girlhood? Yeah. I mean, first of all, congratulations. It's, that is such radical, important, beautiful work that you're doing in your relationships. It's such a big undertaking. I mean, that one, it's a life's work, right? That care thing, that sort of outsourcing of like how I'm taking care of others is how I'm earning my own worth. And like, it's a trap, right? Like it doesn't work if you actually want to have intimate relationships. Like it doesn't work. It only works if you want if you if you want a relationship where you're in service and the other person wants you to be in service. Like that's it. So and I think it, you're right. It, it dovetails exactly back into everything we've been talking about and into sort of, you know, this is something I've been asked a lot since the book has come out. And the the answer that I've sort of come back to the most is kind of a rough one, I think, for some people to hear, with, but it's been really deep for me. And, and it goes sort of across everything we've been talking about in terms of like how I'm relating to my body, how I'm operating in relationships. And I think about this in terms of my students. Like I don't have kids and, and I don't think I will, but I have a lot of kids in my life, other people's kids and students and, and friends. And I think often about what I'm modeling for other people, all the other people in my life, you know, in terms of like how much I'm apologizing over the course of an email, right? Like how much I'm accommodating, like how much I'm measuring my worth on my service to others. And, you know, service is a big part of my life, but I don't think it's possible to impart a truly autonomous, self-respecting, integrated 
selfhood to a young person without having it ourselves because they learn the most from watching us. Right. And I think, you know, and I say this, this is not a condemnation in any way of my own mother, but like she was doing an amazing job with what she had. Like, absolutely. I'm so privileged to have had her as a mother. And I learned as much from watching her as I did from listening to her you know, and there was work that she's been doing over the course of her whole life that when I was really young was not really happening in terms of like, you know, using the best of her energy to take care of the men in her life and not having that reciprocated. Like that was a lesson, right. That I'm now undoing in my own life. Right. And so I really think like, it's okay to be self-centered in a way around this work because it happens from the inside. It really, really does. And so I think like taking whatever we need to sort of take that on for ourselves is the is the absolute first step in being able to teach anybody else, you know, and have those conversations. We have to have them with ourselves first. Thank you for tuning in to my chat with Melissa Phoebos. I hope you'll pick up a copy of Girlhood. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.